0: Discipline has fallen upon hard times. I mean, when is the last time you've heard anyone talk about how they've been disciplined, how God is disciplining them, or discipline in the home, or even self-discipline? When's the last time that's been part of a conversation? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about discipline. As a matter of fact, when I started looking into this topic I was going to try to do a panoramic overall view of discipline in the Bible, but now it's going to be two sermons, okay? And I want to show you that there are five areas of discipline spelled out for us in the Bible in regard to the Christian life, okay? And here they are. And I've grouped them intentionally. And this morning we're going to talk primarily about God's discipline. That's number one. And that's in our passage in Hebrews chapter 12. So you have God's. Discipline. I'm probably going to abbreviate here. Then you have parent discipline in relationship to the children, right? Or home discipline, discipline in the home, okay? And then you have what we call self-discipline. The, we're going to the word self-control is where the word self-discipline comes from. And by the way. In Galatians 5, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit, is self control. So when you read that, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self discipline. Okay? What about, uh, we'll just say this, a friend's discipline? We're going to talk about the meaning of this word in a minute. What about the love of a brother and a sister in Christ? What about the necessity if a brother sees you in sin, he comes to you and says, you need to correct that behavior. You need to correct that attitude. It's not godly. That's what we're talking about there. Finally, there is what we call church discipline. You've heard that one, right? We just don't ever hardly see it anywhere. Now, I've grouped them for this reason. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have these two together. And then in Matthew 18, next week, we're going to group these three together. Because when a brother or sister in Christ gets lack or has no self-discipline, they more easily can fall into temptation, and it becomes habitual. And then a friend will come over to them and love on them by saying, you need to stop that. That is not that is not reminiscent. That is not complimentary to being a Christian. And then at that person who has lost their self-discipline, And who ignores their friend, you go through what? Matthew 18. So that's why I grouped this together. But for this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 and look at God's discipline and parental discipline because the writer of Hebrews uses the parental analogy to teach us how God disciplines his children, okay? And so turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 4 through 11 this morning, Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 12 through 11. So stand together with me. Turn with me and stand together with me. It's the reading of God's word. Okay? Hebrews chapter 12. What? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. What, did I say something? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Ugh. I've only been looking at it all week. And you think that's bad, wait till what's coming, never never mind. Verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this is so rich, rich with you, rich with your character, rich with your love, and yet it's so practical. God, it opens up our eyes to see that you're involved in every instance, every circumstance, everything in our lives in one way, shape, or form, desire to use it to mold us and to shape us further into the image of Christ. You are so intimately concerned with how we live. Because we're your children. And we've been bought, not with things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, the infinite worth of Christ himself. So God, please, you have given us this passage for our encouragement, not discouragement, to open up our eyes to your greatness, to, to how we are your children. And God, is sons and daughters, May we receive what you have to say in your word to us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Now, before we get to our passage, I want to say this. It's tremendously important that we understand the context in which verses 4 and 11 are given. And it comes from verse 1 of chapter 12, particularly the phrase this, Therefore, since we have so great a crowd of witnesses, cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Get the picture that's going on here. Think about it for a minute. The witnesses here. Okay? In other words, the witnesses in verse one of chapter 12 are those he gave us in chapter 11. We know that because of the word therefore. Therefore looks back to chapter 11, okay? But what about these witnesses? What about them? I don't think they're here in the sense of their spectators watching us. I, I grew up thinking that. Or the Bible college thinking that. But the more I read it and the more I understand the context, they're not there as a sense of a spectator, but in the sense that they themselves have they themselves have borne witness to a life of faith. And so they're an example for us. Okay? They have borne witness to the faithfulness of God. And so it's in that sense that there are witnesses that we look to. Why? Because they're witnesses to the faithfulness of God. They're witnesses to a life of faith. And that's what chapter 11 is all about. That's why you have that list of Old Testament saints. That's why we look to them, because they are encouragement. Because we need encouragement each and every day. They too struggled with sin, yet they endured just like us. It's not like, ooh, look at these Old Testament saints. Ooh, look at their, their untouchables. No. Abraham. Think of Abraham. Think of Moses. Think of David. Think about them for a minute. These guys had some major issues in their lives, sin issues, and yet they endured. And they are listed in chapter 11, 4, Your encouragement today and tomorrow and Wednesday and Friday and every day of our lives. Look at the phrase also in verse 1. Lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us. Two things here that you need to note. There are two things that entangle the runner. First is every weight. Every weight refers to anything. The picture is a runner running a race. He's going to want the lightest shoes, the lightest clothing, and he's not going to have anything that's going to bog him down. He's a marathon runner. Any excess weight he's going to strip off. Anything that keeps him from running efficiently and effectively, he's going to take off and get rid of. Now here's the picture here. This would include anything that is even good. Think about it for a minute. Even though things that are good, he says no to. Those things that were considered not just good or all right. It's not a sin issue or not. He's—he's—he's. He's, he's, the picture is one of self-discipline. An athlete will say no to good things or things that are inherently okay. He'll say no to those things in order to run the race and to win and to finish well. That's why he gets up early in the morning when he doesn't have to. That's why he goes to bed early, right? You don't know any Olympian who's going to go to bed at midnight and get up at 10 in the morning. It just doesn't happen. They go to bed early. They watch their time. They watch their diet. They watch their, they watch everything that they do. And even Olympians have to say no to good things that are naturally okay. Why? Because he doesn't want to be entangled with even those things that are okay. So they watch their diet. They have a, a workout regimen that they stick to. He's careful how he spends his time. Then there's the other one. Not only is he careful not to allow good things in his life that will impede his progress in the marathon, but then there's the sin. The sin that so ingly entangles us. You see that in verse 1 as well not only let aside the encumbrance, but also the sin. It's an articulate noun, and, and I think he has something specific there. And for most commentators, they think about the sin of unbelief. But I also read some others could think it could be whatever sin you struggle with can be that sin. So here's the analogy. The runner will say no to those things that are okay, that others can do. But he will also say no to those things he knows that are wrong and bad, those sinful things, those tendencies, whatever his weakness is. Or it could be a particular sin that may distract him or he knows that will put him out of the race, so to speak. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 12. Verse 2 of chapter 12. Ultimately, we are to look to who? Jesus. He is the, he is the what? He's the author. That word means pioneer. He's the pioneer, the one who's went before us. Hebrews 2.10 calls him the author of our salvation. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, verse 2, the author and perfecter of faith. He is the originator. You like that? He's the originator, the pioneer, even of those in the Old Testament. Did you get that? Even those listed in chapter 11, Jesus is also their pioneer. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Old Testament saints, Paul is, in 1 Corinthians 10. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. He's particularly honing in on that time, those people with Moses all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And then Paul qualifies who that rock was. Listen to this. And the rock was Christ. Wow. Going back to chapter 12 of our text in verse 2, he says, fixing our eyes, meditating on Jesus. You know what he's really saying here? When you're in the marathon race and you're struggling with sin, when you're trying to fight off those things that entangle you, when you're trying to say no to even those things that are all right, when you're struggling against the, the sin or two or three that really seem to be, you know, really in your life, in and out a lot. You know, every Christian has an Achilles heel, has a weakness or two. David did, right? I think Paul probably did. We read the passage earlier this morning. In 2 Corinthians, and the reason why God put a thorn in his flesh was so that Paul would not what? Exalt himself. Maybe Paul had a problem with exalting himself. And so God, as a training mechanism, allowed this thorn in his flesh to keep him from doing that. It's training, isn't it? That's that's a form of discipline. We'll look at that in a minute. But I think you're getting the picture here. Preach the gospel to yourself, verse 2. That's what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus. Meditate on him. The author, perfecter of faith. You have all these folks just like you in the Old Testament, but now you have the ultimate one, Christ himself. Christ himself. Wow. What did he do? He endured the cross. He endured the cross. Look at that phrase. For the joy set before him, what did he, he endure? The cross. He's gone through more than anyone else has gone through in human history. That's what that means. He's 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 endured something that you have, not, have never could endure. He's been there and done that. And meanwhile, he perfected the faith in the Father. He's the perfect. He's the originator of faith in his in the Father. That's the picture here. He endured the shame, the rejection, the desertion. He, they even yelled at him, come down from the cross and then we'll believe. Remember that in the gospels? You come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Well, one writer points this out. Had he come down, he would never have hailed, he would never have been hailed as the perfecter of faith, nor would he have left any practical example for others to follow. Wow. So what kept him going? There's another phrase in verse 2, the joy that was set before him. Oh, wow. He endured the cross. He endured the shame. He endured the rejection. He endured the desertion. What kept him going? What keeps us going? What should keep us going? The joy. Well, What was the joy set before him? Also in verse 2, the throne of God. That was on the other side of the cross. That's what is at the other side of the cross. That's what's at the other side of your death. Is being with Christ on the throne, in the throne room, being there in his presence. That's what awaits us. How often do we think of that during the week? And yet in the context of running the race, in the context of what we would call the Christian life, in the context of struggle and trying not to get entangled in the everyday affairs of life and, and what's going on around us, in the context of struggling against these, the sin or the sins that easily entangle you and drag you down, it's in that context we're called to meditate on Christ. It's in that context you are called at that moment to think about the joy that awaits you in the future, beyond the grave, and that is the throne of God. And we know that this joy of his was not for him alone. You can't say that, oh, it's just for Jesus, not me. And here's why. If you want to turn the Gospel of John, of all places where we've been, the Gospel of John, chapter 15. Listen to this, verse 11. These things, now here's the picture. He's in the upper room with his disciples, right? That evening, there's going to be an arrest. He's going to, go, he's going to get arrested, and the next day he's going to die. In the midst of that, he's preparing his disciples. And the last thing you expect him to teak or teach or talk about would be joy. What's the joy in his them being in, huddled in the upper room? What's the joy in his rejection? What's the joy in Israel and the Jewish leaders wanting to kill him? What's the Where's the joy in he's going to be arrested that evening? Where is it? But he says this. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Go to chapter 16 of the Gospel of John, verses 20 through 24. Listen to these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, still in the upper room, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. And the world's joy will be turned into grief. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in labor, she has a pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Love that analogy. It's very simple, very earthy. (laughs) Verse 22, therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. It's an everlasting joy. It's a permanent joy. No one can steal that joy away from you. It's etched in your heart, so to speak. In that day, verse 23, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Wow. The joy of answered prayer. The joy that God Almighty, the sovereign of the universe, listens to you. The joy of knowing he cares for you. The joy of knowing he's your father who loves you so much, he's going to discipline you when you get out of line. That takes us back to Hebrews chapter 12. So turn back to there again. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 2, we learn what kept Jesus going, and it was the joy that was set before him, enabled him to endure the cross. What's your cross this week? What was it last week? Is it a broken relationship? Is it somebody at work? Is it just circumstantial? Is it a disease? What is it? you got to know that God knows it's there, and God has a reason for it. All things work together for good. But now, in verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 12, the the context changes from a race to a family, from a race to a family, and specifically a father-son relationship. Here, here's the big picture. He adopts you and puts you on a course. He saves you and puts you on that course, and that course is called sanctification. Chapter twelve, verse fourteen: Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification without which, without which no one will see the Lord. This race, this marathon, is is is, is a course that leads you to sanctification. It's a purifying course. And on this course of the Christian life, God is involved in your life and He trains you. He disciplines you. And so at this point, He goes from being a runner on a track or on a course, a marathon course, to now being a loving Father who's intimately involved in every step of your race. Every step. So let me make some observations from verses 4 through 11 to get us through. Verse 4, no one has endured what Jesus has endured. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Only Christ has done that. I.E., you and I are not Jesus. And we shouldn't want to be. No one has lived a sinless life, only him. He's the one that lived in perfect obedience. He is the one that lived by perfect faith. We don't have perfect faith. It, the faith that saves is sufficient. It, it saves, it justifies, yes. But but this, God is in the process of sanctifying it, maturing it. Kind of, Peter and James you know, talk about it's on fire. Okay? And in that fire, the dross, the impurities are, are beginning to separate themselves from faith to purify our faith. That is the word picture by Peter in chapter 1 of his letter. Here's another observation. It comes from the meaning of the Greek word discipline. It comes from the word child. And the idea is training a child. God is always about training us. That's what's going on. While you're on course of sanctification, God is intimately involved in every step of the way, training you, and you're his child. Eight times the word is used here, discipline, in these verses in 4 through 11. Eight times the Greek word patia is used. In general, it's a broad term, meaning train, cultivate, correct, and educate. And, and basically, think of... Now, look at me for a minute. Think of this word as having this discipline of having three basic characteristics to it. Number one, punishment. Punishment. That's obvious, isn't it? Okay? The second would be preventative training or preventative discipline. And then educational would be the third one. Let me give some illustrations explain a little bit further. Punishment means corrective. It involves pain. When God sees us going the wrong direction, he's going to instill some punishment. Because he's after a change of behavior, a change of heart. David's an example of this. He's an Old Testament example of this. David was what? Enthralled by his own lust, captivated by his own lust towards Bathsheba. And God punished him because their baby they had, God, what? Killed. That was very painful for David. What about the church at Corinth? It's not just happens to the individuals. What about the church at Corinth? 1 Corinthians 11, 30 and 32. He says this, for this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Here's what's going on there. They're going to the love feast. At the love feast, they would also have communion. And they would just flippantly take it without examining themselves, without thinking about their walk with Christ and their walk with one another. And so while they were running over other people, they would still take the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, you're taking this so flippantly, as if it's nothing. You need to more be more serious about the Lord's Supper. You need to use it to measure your life and to see if you're worthy of taking it. Then he says this. But when you are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. That's what he means. That was a form of discipline. That's why some among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. They die and go home to be with the Lord. That's a form of discipline. What about preventative? Oh, you know this as parents, don't you? You put fences up in your children's lives. Don't cross over here. Don't go across the street because you're, you're preventing them from making mistakes. You're preventing them possibly from sin. You know what's best for them. You put parameters in our lives. God's law, the Ten Commandments, are like a parameters for us. They're for our good. Right? Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. I mean, those are just parameters, fences that God puts in our lives to prevent us from sinning and experiencing even more pain. There are limitations and restrictions. Brings us back to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That thorn in his flesh, I, I don't think it was a disease, I think it was a person that hounded him as he would travel about in his missionary endeavors. This person would hound him and hound him and make his life miserable. And and that was a, a, a disciplined mechanism uh, that God had in Paul's life. Why? Because to prevent Paul from exalting himself. So it's not just... Discipline doesn't just involve punishment, but there's also a preventative uh, aspect of discipline. Then there's educational. That means instructive, informative, to learn the ways and the character of God. Job is a beautiful example of this. Job one one. listen to these words. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. You go all the way back to the end of Job, chapter 42. After all that is written, listen to these words. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. So so the, the whole book of Job was how God and his sovereignty was orchestrating the events in Job's life to teach him and train him about himself. For God to show us, I am your God, and this is who I am. These are my ways. And so he says, and then Job responds, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God, you're teaching me and you're training me with these circumstances in my life to tell me you're sovereign. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand before. One, one. Thanks to wonderful me for which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust in ashes. You know what that tells me? I'm never, ever too old to learn. I am always a child in God's eyes. I don't care how old you are. To God, you're always that child. You're adopted. And you're never too old to learn. So those are basically the three aspects. Let's go on through our passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's have another observation. Notice the relationship that is there. Notice the relationship. Oh, I love this. First of all, we're not Jesus. That's an observation. No one has gone through what he's gone through. Then we looked at the word discipline and, and broaden what it means. But now look at the relationship that is there, verses 5, 6, and 7. Verses 5 and 6 comes out of Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? Then he quotes my son." My son. Remember, he goes from the illustration of a race in verses one and two to now an illustration of family, sonship. Have you forgotten the exhortation of Proverbs three, eleven and twelve? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. What about this relationship of father and son? Well, first of all, a father's always interested in everything that's going on in his son's life. He's interested in everything that's going on in your life. A father wants to know. A father cares. He's interested. And by the way, one of the observations we're going to make, he has a goal for you. And so everything that's happening in your life, he wants to use so that you reach that goal. And that goal is verses 10 and 11. holiness. In the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's why God is not interested in us being comfortable. He's interested in our character. This relationship. We often forget that God is doing a work in our lives and we get so bogged down in the circumstance or that person that's making my life miserable. And we, we and we approach that situation with tunnel vision and we forget that God's wanting to use this specifically, this particular circumstance or situation or even person or event in my life to train me, to discipline me, either to educate me or to punish me. Or to prevent me from further sinning. Do we understand how much God loves us? Isn't that what this is all about? Isn't this what he's getting at in verse 6? For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And not only that, scourges. That means whip. There are times where we get so rebellious, so apathetic with him, so rebellious in our attitude towards him that he will even get out the belt sometimes. In other words, it'll be more of a punishment. It will be a punishment. But it's only because he loves us. I mean, he who has begun a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. All things work together for good. All things, everything. What happened to you this past week that you did not like, that wasn't fair? God wants to use that to train you regardless of what it is, all things, not most things, all things. And they come in different shapes and sizes, events and people. I think one of my problems, our problems as Christians is we kind of block God out of the picture. You know, I only focus in on my problem and not him. Instead of getting on my knees and saying, God, what are you teaching me right now with this person, with this misery in my life, with this problem? You know, what is it do you want from me? Father, I'm here to submit. I'm your son. I'm your little S. And meanwhile, you're focusing on Jesus because you know that what he endured was infinitely more than what you would ever endure. You've got the Old Testament saints to in chapter 11 to look at. And so you're, you're in good company You're not alone, beloved. We're not alone. But how many times we act as if we're all alone? And we have the church. We have one another. Not just the Old Testament saints, but one another. And ultimately, we have Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at here. You're not alone. You've been adopted. God himself and his sovereignty has placed you on a course of sanctification. And on that course, you're going you're to come across a wall. Think of the picture of a marathon runner. If you have ever run any distance, you know that certain times you hit a wall. Your heart is starting to go, whew, this is getting tough, and your legs begin to get feeble and frail. And when you hit that wall, you want to give up. You want to stop running. And everyone in this room has hit that wall, and you will hit that wall, where we, you could be in that wall right now. And God's saying, you have the Old Testament saints, you have Jesus himself, and you have the church. And not only that, you're his son. He knows the wall. He sees the wall. That's why you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, listen to these two verses. 15 and 16, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He understands the power of temptation. And he understands how you've given into it at times. But verse 16, therefore, because he does understand, because he sympathizes with our weaknesses, let us draw near. With confidence to the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. When do you need that the most? When is that time? When you hit that spiritual wall. And you feel that you can't go on anymore. That's why you have verse 3 of chapter 12. Back in our text so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, so that you will not give up when you hit that wall in your life. I mean, this is is fantastic. What an encouragement. The encouragement is this. The Father's adopted you. He put you on that course. And as you're running that long marathon race, he understands that you're going to hit walls. And he sees you hitting those walls. And the Son of God knows those walls because he's been tempted with those walls. He never sinned, though. And so when we do trip up and sin, he understands that. We're not him. Right? And so the writer of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers who have been scattered, who have been suffering economic and social persecution, and even some being thrown into jail, according to chapter 10, he's saying, don't give up. Don't stop running. Continue on. Endure. And the key to this is focusing on Christ. He is the originator, the author, and the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Don't ever forget that God's always training us. He's always training us. How about another observation? Notice the motive. In verse 6 and 7. Those who the Lord loves. Loves. He disciplines. Look at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I.e., what father is there who does not love their children? And they express that love. One way they express that love is by disciplining them. Either educating them or pre, or through preventative discipline or punishment when they cross the line into rebellion. Notice the analogy there. In other words, this discipline proves his love for us and our sonship. That's how God proves it. And then notice the contrast in verse 8, but. Another observation, but. We've got a contrast going on here. If you are without discipline... Of which all have become partakers. All of God's children are partakers of God's discipline. Wow. All. There's no exception. But if you are without, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Wow. Here's another one. Notice the goal, the purpose of discipline. Verse 10. For they... Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he that is God, our heavenly Father, disciplines us for our good. Why purpose statement so that purpose statement here it is we may share his holiness. This is reminiscent of what Peter wrote in First Peter chapter one. Listen to fourteen through sixteen as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, that is before you came to Christ. But like the Holy One who called you, become holy yourselves in all your behavior. Why? Why should I concentrate on becoming holy today? Verse 16, because it is written, you shall, future tense, be holy. That's your future. That's God's plan for you. Out of 1 Peter chapter 1, 14, 15, and 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. God says, I've not only adopted you, I put you on this course while on earth of sanctification. At the end of that course is holiness, is righteousness, is being with the Son of God. So on earth you're praying to the throne of grace, but when you die and you're with the Lord, you're at the throne of grace with a new body. What an incredible picture. That, beloved, is the joy that is set before us. It's that joy is what gets us through those walls, those spiritual walls, those problems, those difficulties, and even the discipline the Lord has for us. You see, that's the wonderful thing. The Father disciplines us because He has a goal in mind. He's out to achieve something. He who began a work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. When it all comes to fruition. Meanwhile, He disciplines us. He educates us. He trains us as His children. He, He, He builds these parameters, these preventative mechanisms in our lives. And then when we cross them, We get a little bit rebellious, then he'll punish us. He'll spank us back in, somehow, way, shape, or form. Sometimes we get really discouraged, and we get really weak, and we begin to really falter with self-discipline or self-control. We get out of control, and sin creeps into our lives. And these sin patterns begin to develop And it begins by getting a little bit more lax and a little bit more lax in the word of God by not going to church and not surrounding ourselves with believers to encourage us. And it's a slow drift away. And in that slow drift, a friend will see that we're getting off course and we've, we've fallen into sin. And that friend comes into our life and says, I love you, but you got to stop. I love you too much to keep going that direction. And then if they don't listen, God has a further mechanism in Matthew 18 called church discipline, that process where you're wanting to grab that brother or that sister's attention because you love them and you want to see them restored into fellowship. Verse 11, observe the outcome. It's a practical result as well, practical righteousness. Chapter 12, verse 11 in our main text, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. You got that right. (laughs) <laughs> but sorrowful. It, it's painful, isn't it? It's painful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, you look back at the pain and you say it's worth it. You look back at the pain, you look back at the punishment, you look back at the discipline and you go, you know, God, thank you very much. It was a blessing. The blessing of discipline. Because afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Of Righteousness. Daily righteousness, practical righteousness, living in obedience. Which brings me to the last observation, and it has to do with the second area of discipline: parents. And just just handle this briefly. Notice we have to note the illustration there, the fathers with their children. Notice this: it should be a reflection, a father's discipline of their child, should be a reflection, or a mirror. Of God's training you. You see that? Parents, when you train your children. You are an illustration. You are mirroring. You are reflecting. What God does with his children. In other words. When you're doing it. When you're disciplining them. You're you're giving your child. A greater glimpse of the love of God. That he cares. A parent that does not discipline their child, is communicating to their child, I don't care about you. Man, is that falling on hard times in our society today. Man, this discipline instills security in a child, doesn't it? It communicates to me that, God, you're my father. It communicates to me that this woman over here is my mother, but she disciplined me, right? That she loved me. You might not understand it at the moment, but after you begin to grow by it, you begin to look back and go, aha, that's the purpose, that's the point. You're communicating that you're just not interested in, in circumstantial things or situations, but you're interested in their heart, their soul. You're interested in building their character, and there's nothing more important than that not interested in parents, interested in how comfortable your children are, but that you're instilling godly character into their lives. So truly, in the end, after all we've searched this morning, discipline, according to the Scriptures, is a blessing from God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, help us, just train us, You you, you reveal in your word your relationship with us and the practical ramifications of it, particularly using the illustration of a father and sons, father and daughters. And, Father, how you care about every step we take. You care about our surroundings. You care about what's going on in our lives. And and you want to use everything. And you do use everything. If I would just pay attention more You use circumstances and situations and events and people in my life to train me, to educate me, to produce righteousness in me. And this is the Christian journey. This is the marathon race. And God, thank you. We should all just praise you for the blessing of the discipline of the Lord. And all God's people said, amen.